Hello and welcome. My name is Julie Clegg and this is World Class Investigator, the podcast for those of you who want to rise to the top of your profession, build an influential global network of like-minded professionals and create a legacy of integrity and excellence. I'm glad you're here. And once again, it's time to take another step in your journey towards becoming truly world-class. So we're here today with Andrew Wallace. Andrew is the founder and CEO of Unseen. Welcome, Andrew, and thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. Uh, It's probably most useful if you can tell me a bit about your background, how you became uh, involved in the world that you're in. How did you start to explore the world of human trafficking and modern slavery? So I've got a varied background. So I've worked in the commercial sector, so primarily within the retail sector. Then I've also done some work uh, in the public sector and some consultancy work. Um, But I sort of came across this subject when I had a complete sort of switcheroo careers-wise, and I was actually working for a church. And a colleague of mine was in the Ukraine and actually came across a woman that was about to be trafficked. Uh, she approached him and, and some others in a hotel thinking that she he was the person that she was meant to meet, saying that she had this fantastic job in the US uh, and was, you know, was all set to go and she bought her an airfare. And thankfully, one of the guys on the team was actually FBI and just immediately clocked it as a human trafficking situation um, and quizzed her on it and just said, Look, if you take that job, it isn't A, the job doesn't exist and B, you'll end up in a traffic situation. And so those guys just clubbed together. They paid back, I think, $600 or so that she paid for her flight and told her to get out of town. And actually, then at that point, her actual trafficker walked in. And so they ended up having to buy her off the trafficker again. Um, and uh, she left, he left, and then he came back with the local police because they were, they were in on the whole trafficking thing as well. Um, and so they all had to leave town rather quickly. So that, that came back, and, I mean, I've been to the Ukraine, and it's fairly wild west at the best of times, but that was taking it up to a whole different level. And then parallel with that, we had for a number of years as a church been working around the social orphan problem in Ukraine, and we were just trying to figure out how we could help kids post-16 when they left um, the orphanages. And it had really sort of hit a brick wall. We tried everything like child sponsorship and just nothing was really working in that context. And we were just still asking what happens to these kids when, when they leave the orphanage and, and the authorities didn't want to engage. And eventually on you know, quite a lot of pushing, they said, well, most of them either end up as drug users, prostitutes or trafficked. And, and by traffic, they meant literally the traffickers turn up at the orphanages on turf out day. Kids get in the back of the car and disappear, never seen again. So those two stories came across my desk within a, a three or four month period and, and sort of piqued my interest. And then I just started seeing just occasional stories in the press about trafficking here in the UK. Um, and then the one that really grabbed my attention was one that was highlighting the fact that traffickers were moving people from Eastern Europe, predominantly women at that time. Uh, through the regional airports in the UK and onwards to the US uh, and North America. Um, And one of the airports named was Bristol, which is where I live. And so because we were quite a large church and um, and was already doing a lot with the city in terms of sort of looking after the poor and the disadvantaged, I ended up writing to all my local MPs and my uh, all members of the city council and the chief of police saying, 
come across this issue? Is it an issue in Bristol? If it is, how can we help? And that led to a meeting with a chief superintendent from Avon and Somerset Police Force. Um, and we ended up having a three or four hour off the record conversation where he essentially sort of peeled back a layer of Bristol that I had been completely oblivious about. And then because of his senior ranking, peeled back a layer on the UK um, of what he at that stage understood human trafficking to be, the, you know, the nature of it, the scale of it, and the, the prevalence of it. And at that time he was saying, you know, they were aware of 65 to 75 illegal brothels in the city of Bristol itself that were run by either Chinese triad or Eastern European gangs, um, where all they could do was kick the door in, arrest the girls who they knew were victims. Um, but that was the only way to get them out of the situation on immigration charges. They would stick them in a bed and breakfast or a hotel overnight. The girls would disappear and they knew that they were going straight back to the traffickers and moved to a different part of the country. And so he was frustrated as a police, a serving police officer that, A, he was having to arrest people that he knew were victims in order to get them out of the situation, but B, there was nothing really that they were doing to sort of help improve the situation for, for those individuals. And at the end of that conversation, he sort of challenged me. I think he, he now thinks stupidly, uh, but it was actually very timely. But he said, you know, any, any idiot can, can write a letter um, and create a sting, and you've certainly done that because um, everybody's running around trying to answer your questions and that there aren't any answers. But, but what are you actually going to do? And I stupidly said to him, well, what do you need? And, and his response was, I needed safe housing. I need somewhere safe that I can put these victims so that they don't abscond, so that they can begin to recover. And as they recover, hopefully they'll then engage with us so we can actually get after the bad guys. So I said, okay, I'll do that. I haven't got a clue how to do it, what it involves, but I'll do it on one condition. You become my first trustee. And so we shook hands on it in my office. And that was really sort of, that was my journey into trafficking um, and understanding of trafficking. Uh, and that, that was the genesis and the beginning of Unseen. Wow, that's that's an incredible story, and so it's so inspiring to me that um, you know this is not something that was your background, and it's also not something that a lot of the people in the UK really would even be aware of. That there's this there's this whole underground uh, world that exists that that really. Um, you know, even the media and even law enforcement at a very local level may even just be scratching the surface of. Yeah, sure. And I mean, you know, Unseen is, is 10 next year in 2018. So if we, if we go back 10 years, mm. that absolutely perfectly captures, you know, what the situation was in the UK. It was predominantly understood, if it was understood at all, it was around uh, trafficking for sexual exploitation. But right. probably the controlling narrative was it was just an immigration crime. So these, these people had come over here, they'd ended up in a bad situation, but they were mm -hmm. trying to get here illegally anyway. Um, and it was an issue that was uh, not a priority. And I remember this senior police officer, his, his name was Steve. Steve said to me, he said, until it becomes a political priority, it won't be a policing priority. And until it's a policing priority, it won't get the attention and the bandwidth that it deserves. And so I think really very early on in thinking about, you know, what Unseen was going to be about, although our entry point was starting a safe house, Mm. We always knew that that was that was the entry point, but there was so much more, and we actually had to do 
and think and and really think about what are the big issues and the systemic issues that we that we needed to address. Um, and so roll forward three years from 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2011, I was able to uh, persuade this think tank in London called the Centre for Social Justice to look at this issue of of trafficking slavery because by that time we were dealing directly with victims. We had engaged with police, with what was then SOCA, which is now the National mm-hmm. Crime Agency in the UK. Um, you know, with local government and all you know all the different such agencies, and just realised that the UK's response was woefully inadequate and that mm-hmm. the scale of the problem was so much bigger than I think anybody realized um, at the time. And so persuaded this this think tank to um, have a look at the issue and they very kindly asked me to then lead on that. And so we spent two years really going the length and breadth of the UK talking to 200 different individuals and agencies and organizations mm-hmm. about the problem to do two things really. One, to try and sort of quantify what the nature and the scale of the problem was. And then Mm. secondly, to look at what the response was. And then on the back of that, to then sort of make recommendations as to what the UK needed to do, really to get back to first base in terms Mm. of responding to this crime. So, I mean, honestly, I just have so many questions. Um, I guess the it, it would be helpful to, so tell me about Unseen. Tell me what Unseen does now. So obviously you started and the, you know, you had this very noble, um, intention and to just create some housing for these people that had been trafficked. And really you were trying to get them out of this loop yeah. to stop them returning back into that life and to, you know, to give them a different option going forward and to get them out of, uh, the influence and the clutches of the people that were trafficking them. Um, so how has Unseen uh, changed over the years? What's your mandate now and how does that differ to how you first began? Oh, gosh. I mean, it, it, completely different now. Um, I mean, what the, the thing that's core and will remain the same is our frontline work with victims um, mm. because that informs everything else that we do. And I think it's that understanding of, of what's happened to a victim what their journey has been, what the issues are that they face that then frames everything else that we do. So we do five main things now as Unseen. So the, the first one is support, and I've talked about that, but that's that's mm-hmm. grown and developed. So we initially started with a safe house for women. We have now one for men and one for kids as well. We also have an outreach service uh, for lower-level needs victims mm-hmm. as well. Um, and because the, the, the accommodation services that we provide – uh, within the UK context are what we call tier one. So the, the victims that we get are the most at risk, either from themselves due to the trauma or from their traffickers. So if they're judged to be high risk, then we get them right. uh, within the UK's national referral mechanism. Um, and then we also have a reintegration service. So, you know, what happens to somebody isn't just, you know, we've discovered you, you've got a safe house and that sort of initial sort of triage and, and trauma recovery but the long term, how do we help that individual back into society, um, especially if they're staying within the, within the UK? Then our right. second strand is around equipping, and that's where we work closely with police, statutory agencies, frontline agencies. And that that's a myriad of things. That's everything from training to victim identification to uh, joint working with them, and by that sort of... Uh, you know, providing either reception centres when a police operation is going on or doing 
welfare visits or problem profiling visits with the police so that someone's uh, that the, if there are potential victims there they've got somebody that's non-police that they can talk to mm. um so that's our equipping strand then our third strand is influence so that's work with government around um well off the back of the report you know, which was the catalyst to the modern slavery act so i was heavily involved in sort of the uk legislation but more mm. now around policy and strategy you know legislation is a very blunt tool it's a necessary right. tool but what's the policy and the strategy that the different actors that are in the space need to have in order that we can all collaborate together so do a lot of work with that also at eu level now and increasingly internationally talking either to governments about the journey that we went on in the uk in bringing about legislation and what that meant mm-hmm. um on that and then our fourth strand is with business um and really helping business to address this issue so th- the issues found in the supply chains of the world issues around forced labor again mm-hmm. helping them to identify victims but also you know how to um uh interact with ngos because that's something that uh, businesses are often quite wary of um and again you know w- what it means if you know if policing needs to get involved uh, because you know there's criminality taking place and then we mm-hmm. also run the UK's uh, modern slavery helpline which is sort of the central hub now for either public to call with tip-offs or police and other frontline agencies to call for support or victims to call and I think the thing that sort of staggered us in the first where are we 14 months of operation something like 19% of our calls come directly from victims and then another 40% of calls are someone calling on behalf of a victim so 60% of the calls are, are coming you know that uh, close proximity to victims and so in the first 12 months we took 3000 calls which identified 4000 potential victims and uh, we raised 1000 modern slavery cases with police or the or the relevant statutory agency that needs to deal with it so i think it's giving us that uk wide perspective of what's really going on you know those numbers when i when i hear them it's it's incredibly gratifying but but it also is very very sad. Um, I I think, and I'm and again, I'm sure that's just the the tip of the iceberg. Not even um, you know a small percentage of what the reality is out there for people that either don't know how to reach out for help or are too afraid or are not able to for for whatever reason, um, or that don't realise that help is available, or even don't necessarily realise that how how they're being victimised or or that they are being victimised. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's. And victims yeah, very rarely self-identify. You know, you can ask somebody with every single indicator of trafficking and slavery, um, you know, staring you in the face, and and they will flat out deny that they're a victim for a whole number right. of reasons. You know, whether whether it's fear of the trafficker, or mm-hmm. you know, perversely, it almost sounds that the situation they're in that to you and I would appear appalling is a better yeah. situation than they would have if they were still at home. Right, and this is, um, you know. This is one of the issues that, you know, I've worked quite extensively in, in the domestic violence field. And one of the questions that we often get asked is, why don't women leave? And, and sometimes it is as simple as either people don't necessarily identify as a victim or realize they're being victimized, or they still believe that the situation they're in is better than the situation that they would be leaving to go to. Um, so I, so I guess that this is, this just amplifies that. Um, 
Now, you mentioned the, the term modern slavery and, yeah. uh, you know, we've been talking about trafficking. I think there's, uh, there's definitely some misunderstanding as, you know, when I, when I read about these subjects, there's a misunderstanding or a, a lack of clarity over the differences between modern slavery and human trafficking. Could you just clarify that um, and what, what the definition of each of those would be? Sure. Um, um, the reason that the, the UK ended up with um, a piece of legislation called the Modern Slavery Act was um, in, in part <laughs> due to me, um, but in part due to the, the report that, that we um, published in, in 2013. Because as part of that process, what we discovered was that there wasn't a lot of understanding, certainly amongst the general public, but also I think media and policing, and it just sort of radiated out as to what human trafficking was. If you mm-hmm. if you were in the in the the space and and you were you know a sort of a technocrat, you, you understood what human trafficking was. It's defined within the Palermo uh, Protocol, you know, and you talk about the act, the means, and the purpose. Uh, and this concept of movement, and so you know how somebody is recruited, they're deceived, they're moved, mm. they're then put into an exploitative situation. So there is a technical definition that has been agreed through the UN. It's, it's defined within what's called the Paloma Protocol. But what we found was there was just no traction. There was no understanding. And, and I think for us, we were we were racking our brains as to if we don't get public engagement and we don't get wider police engagement and political engagement and media engagement then we will never come to some an effective way of raising the profile of this issue that meant that you'd then get appropriate resourcing, appropriate political buy-in, and, and everything that was needed then to effectively tackle the, the crime. And so we ended up having this discussion around, but actually when someone is in a, in a traffic situation, you know whether they've been traffic moved, whether in, they're in a situation of domestic servitude or forced criminality or forced labour or sexual exploitation, even mm. organ trafficking and sexual exploitation. That person, despite the fact that they don't have iron shackles on them, mm. is in a very similar situation to slavery of 200-plus years ago in the transatlantic slave trade. And so we sort of said, okay, well, why don't we just call it that? And, you know, within a UK context, uh, quite provocative, uh, lots of sort of potential for misunderstanding or historical backlash, uh, especially from the Afro-Caribbean community. But we said if, if we don't call it what it is, then actually we, w- we won't get that buy-in. And, for- and we were fortunate in that at the same time in the U.S. there was a similar movement going on and mm. uh, you know, around the same time, and I won't claim we came before Obama, but we did, um, <laughs> th- there was this thing of you know, Obama said at, at the Clinton Global Initiative, let's just call it what it is. Let's call human trafficking what it is, is modern slavery. And there were mm-hmm. other voices that had called it. So there was this sort of perfect storm of where in order to sort of really g- grab the agenda, we had to call it what, what it was. Right. And so we said, let's do that. And and one of our key recommendations was that there needed to be primary legislation and it should be called modern slavery. So when it, when you look at the Modern Slavery Act, what it actually mm-hmm. says at the top, of, the top of the legislation, it says, look, modern slavery is not a technical term. It's not something mm-hmm. that's been agreed by international governments around the world. The UK is using it as an, an umbrella term to cover trafficking, servitude and actual slavery, if it actually does, mm-hmm. that's defined in the 1926 convention. So it's this umbrella term, and it's saying all of these are serious crimes, um, and and the sentencing now reflects that, but it, it encompasses all of those different things. So I hope that makes it a little bit clearer. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when I when I think about it in my mind, it's um, you know, the act of trafficking, and and this may be simplifying it too much, but it's it's how I separate it really in my mind when I'm investigating these types of things, is the slavery, the modern slavery part of it is what's is the purpose, and the trafficking is the function that gets them to that purpose. So it's um, you know, if you think of for me, if I think of trafficking as these people being taken away from the place that they uh either should be, the environment that they want to be in or they should be in, for the purposes of doing something illegal or nefarious or uh, you know, victimizing to them. Um that's kind of how I think about it in my mind. But yeah. uh, that's the yeah. definition. And I think I think the other thing as well that that we wanted to sort of highlight it uh, mm. and draw out was the if there was an understanding around human trafficking, it, it was involving foreign nationals coming into the UK. Right. And, and what we knew, we already knew, and, and we're increasingly seeing is that UK nationals were equally vulnerable to this as well. Um, and so I think what it, what had grown up. It, it, certainly not in the definitions, but what had grown up was this understanding that it was only trafficking if somebody crossed an international border. And that's mm-hmm. where the issues and, and the confusion with um, migration or illegal, you know, smuggling and entry into a country, illegal migration, yeah, sort of just compounded mm-hmm. the problem. And one of the things we said was, no, look, actually what we're talking about is a crime against, you know, where you've got a victim and a perpetrator. We're not talking about somebody trying to illegally get into the country or, or around that and it's this is a crime that affects men women and children it affects uk nationals and non-uk nationals it's no respect of age creed religion faith you know or sex um and so we were trying to sort of say let's bust some of these sort of myths that had grown up around it because it was actually been counterproductive to actually dealing with the issue Right. And, and I think already you see that, not necessarily in the media. I think the media are generally good at reporting this um, the way it is. Uh, and that's just from an outsider's point of view. But I, I also do think there are certain stereotypes with respect to uh, immigration issues and, and people being moved around, you know, wanting to get to a different country and then accepting a job that is not a real job, but moving yeah. through choice. And I, and I think that, that that is a common misconception that people are trafficked and people are exploited within their own borders, within their own environment. And this is not a necessarily a cross-jurisdictional issue. And it isn't also just about sexual slavery. This is about, uh, you know, this is males that are being exploited for the purposes of working. And, um, you know, do you, do you tend to see certain demographics or certain genders or uh, ethnicities, cultures being affected by these crimes more than others? Uh, We do. Um, And I I think, you know, if I go back to, you know, when Unseen started, you know, the the predominant understanding of it was it was Eastern European women being trafficked into Western Europe, uh, primarily Mm -hmm. for sexual exploitation. So, you know, your top source countries were Ukraine, uh, Romania, Bulgaria, etc., and and that you know they absolutely dominated the, the whole space. There was a you know there was a smattering from other countries. Let's roll forward ten years. You know, last year we saw something like 102 different nationalities identified within the UK's national referral mechanism. But if you look at the top ten, which constitutes about 70 percent of the victims, um, the, you know the the kicker is UK nationals amongst adults are at number five. Um, 
So, you know, immediately that tells you that it's both a, a local problem as well as an international problem. Um, and then your top nationalities are, you know, Albanian, Nigerian, Vietnamese. Then, you know, it bounces around. It could be Romanian one year and something else. And if you look at the nationalities um, uh, in terms of uh, against typologies, so, you know, within sort of forced labor, it, it tends to be much now more uh, Eastern European Baltic states. Um, right. So sort of the Poland, the Latvia, Lithuanians that are coming into the UK and end up in a forced labor situation around domestic servitude. Um, yeah. You know, we see a large number of, of Nigerians in that as well, but also f- uh, Filipinos um, often coming in with other foreign nationals you know, on supposedly a domestic worker visa. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you if you look at the sexual exploitation thing, it's it's all over the place and changes. And at the moment, it's Albania, which is at the top of that. Um, but that's kind of complicated because there's a sort of twist in that around sort of forced pregnancies as well in order to then uh, create benefit fraud as well. So, I mean, I think all of that tells you is that you're, you're dealing with something that's constantly changing. Yes. The, the perpetrators of the crime, I think if we only think of them as criminals, I think we miss a trick. What I mean by yes. that is that they're smart business people and, and they look at what's going on and they say, how do I adapt my model in order that I can sell my commodity you know, into whatever type of exploitation it is? And we've seen the Home Office have just come out with sort of 17 uh, typologies of, of slavery and trafficking that they've identified within the UK, albeit off a small um, subset. And I, I think what's fascinating is, you know, you've got your big broad headlines in terms of sexual exploitation, forced labor, forced criminality, domestic servitude. Mm-hmm. Um, but under that, you've got variations. And I think as we understand the problem more, we're going to see more variations. So that's with adults. When you get to kids, it's mm. UK nationals that are either number one or number two consistently. And then Vietnamese miners who are in the forced criminality area. So things like cannabis factories. Um, and then what we see even within that is multiple types of exploitation throughout the day of an individual. So you might see a, a Vietnamese or South Chinese girl in a nail bar during the day. So you've got forced labor exploitation taking place there. Then at night into, you know, forced sexual exploitation. Um, because basically the, this illicit trader has got a commodity and he's trying to extract as much profit from his model as, as quickly as he can. Um, right. So that's, it, it's, it varies. You know, and, and if we go back five years, it was a different set of nationalities. So I think it's a, it's a, a trade and it's criminality that is constantly changing and constantly morphing. So I think if, you know, if we go, you know, saying, oh, I think we've got this nailed now because we've got these hypotheses and it's th- these nationalities, we'll come back in two years' time and go, well, it's completely changed. Yeah, it's a very a very fluid and evolving landscape. And uh, do you think do you, in your experience and what you're seeing is is it a growing problem or is it static? That's is it static in numbers but changing in terms of um, where these people are coming from, what they're what they're how they're being exploited, and the ways that they're being um, victimized by the people that are controlling them, or is it? it do you think it's an increasing issue? Hmm. The truth is I don't think anybody knows Um, Mm -hmm. because I don't think we even know what the baseline is yet. 
Right. Um, and so I think, you know, that old adage, if, if you look for it, you'll find it, I think, still holds true. And what we don't know is how big a rock that we're looking under and, you know, and how deep is the cesspool underneath it. Um, so to give you an example of sort of where the numbers are going at the moment, if you look at referrals into the national referral mechanism, they're going up. Some years they go up by 40%. I think last year they went up by 15%. Obviously the percentages come down, you know, as the numbers grow. Um, so that's about 4,000 people there that are identified who have basically said, I want government help uh, for that. There's mm. thousands that don't. The UK uh, Home Office about three years ago um, did a sort of statistical analysis of, based on really, really flimsy data and came out and said, well, we think at any one time 10 to 13,000 people are held in situations of modern slavery. The uh, national policing lead has just come out and said, look, that, that figure of ten to 13,000, it's the tip of the iceberg, you know, based on what we're now seeing. Now that we understand it more, now that we've got greater awareness, now that we're finding it more. Um, so the ten to 13,000 is the tip of the iceberg figure. And then someone within the NCA said, I think a couple of weeks ago, you know, we might even be talking in the hundreds of thousands in the UK. Now, that's the UK. Across the globe, um, we've seen all sorts of figures being bandied about. And again, I would say the data is really poor. And, and I do worry about, you know, when, why are we trying to sort of quantify a figure? I, part of me understands why it's important. Yes. But another part of me just says, well, you know, one's too many. Um, and I think we should just, we should go with the hard data that we've got. Um, so this yes. figure has been bandied around like 40.6 million now. Um, and, it, I, you know, as I do, as you talk to NGO leaders around the world, I think we all go, we've no idea whether that, you know, how true that figure is, whether it's too high or too low. I think all of us probably would sort of say privately that the figure's way too low. This is far more endemic. Um, but at the same time, if you're going to put a figure out, you've got to have some reliable data behind it. And I just don't see that. And I, I think it's a bit of a sort of a rabbit warren to go down. All, all mm -hmm. I know is that as we work with police in the UK, I think as we develop internationally and work with, with others, mm -hmm. uh, that they become aware of how does this present, you know, what do victims look like, what are the indicators of it, that the numbers mm -hmm. continually go, go up. Um, and, and we see it on the helpline just in terms of, you know, the, the statistics that I quoted, you know, earlier in terms of in the first 12 months without any major sort of ad campaign or anything else, there's 4,000 potential victims identified. And we would always go super conservative on the figures. So if someone called up and said, you know, I've seen a car wash. I'm sure, you know, it's cash only. They're not dressed appropriately. Mm -hmm. They're living in a shack behind it. Um, right. and one person takes the cash and you, know, you go tick 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 there's all those indicators around that and then you say well how many people then they say oh somewhere between five and ten we'd always go with the, the five figures so probably our numbers are light in, in that respect so yeah and so you mentioned something there about the indicators and uh, and about these these markers that will will tell you whether or not you're potentially dealing with a, a modern slavery or human trafficking situation so 
how would somebody, what, what are those markers? And I don't necessarily mean all 17 or, or <laughs> all of them, but uh, if you're somebody such as myself that, that deals with um, any number of international investigations at one time, and I have a fairly broad network, and so I'm dealing with a number of different situations uh, in, a, in a variety of jurisdictions, what kind of things would a person like myself or any other investigator uh, be looking out for in terms of uh, indicators of human trafficking or somebody being either victimized or somebody being involved in that in in any part of that supply chain great question uh, uh, so i think the the first thing is to remember that, and we touched on it earlier which is often these people don't self-identify uh, mm-hmm. so they, they even if you ask them point blank then they're not going to say yep i am i mean some will but it, it they're few and far between i think the first thing is is that person uh under somebody else's control right. so do they have freedom of movement are they allowed to come and go as they please um that, and and the thing to remember is it's often there isn't like a one silver bullet indicator it's a number of indicators that add up to you know somebody being under under somebody else's control mm-hmm. um do they have their papers or access to their papers right um that's you know often that's withheld especially if, if, it's, a, if it's a foreign national in another country are they appropriately dressed for either the work that they're doing or for the weather um you know and it may be over a number of days that you you're observing them they they only seem to appear to have one set of clothing around them right. Do they come and go from a, a, a place, of, you know, a house at unusual times or, do, you know, are they always accompanied or are they always, you know, in a group uh, around that and moved in a group in a van from one place to the next place? Uh, on that, some of the, you know, around sexual exploitation, it could be, you know, the, the telltale signs of, you know, around brothel activity, you know, um, so you know, condoms out the place, men just coming and going at all hours around that, and we're seeing this phenomenon in the UK now of what we call pop-up brothels. Traffickers again have you know recognised that Airbnb and other such uh, organisations are great for them, just hiring places, moving women in, and then moving them out pretty quickly. So it's really hard to sort of keep a track of them there. Um, are they fearful? You know, do they do they want to interact with you or with others? Um, is their language, and again, you know, this, you have to quantify this, but mm-hmm. um, you know, certainly around sexual exploitation, the only language they know is is around, uh, you know, the sex industry, or right. um, they always have to rely on somebody else to translate for them. Um, and we've mm-hmm. seen this within, the, you know, within the, uh, the health service. You know, someone coming in uh, clearly under somebody else's control, and that person insisting that they would do all the translating back and forth. Um, in that whole process, do they look malnourished, um, mm-hmm. especially in a forced labour situation? Because often they're they're in what we call the unregulated industry, so they're doing hard work, often manual work, you know, yes. tarmacking um, or construction and everything else, and and they just, you know, they're not dressed appropriately. They don't have the safety gear, but you know, but also, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they don't look in great physical shape around that. And then mm-hmm. allied with that is, again, sort of telltale signs of there's clearly been beatings or, or physical acts of violence against them um, mm-hmm. that haven't been treated properly. Um, you know, we've seen everything from broken limbs that haven't sort of been 
uh, clearly haven't had a, a medic look at them and, and reset properly around that. Um, and we're, we're now seeing in the UK, you know, a, a preying on those w- with mental uh, disorders as well and because they're just easier to control. And so it's a whole number of different things. And, and you know, if we had time, we could break it down sort of by each different typology. But then nice. the other thing I think for an investigators yeah. is – when you're looking at a scene, what do you see? Do you see a perpetrator or do you see a victim? Right. Um, and I think we've, you know, we've done a lot of work with UK policing in terms of the cannabis factories, where mm. you know prior to sort of you know ten years ago, um, I remember talking to somebody from the drug squad within Avon and Somerset Police, saying, you know, we used to kick the doors in, um, and you know we'd arrest them all. Yes. And he said, what's the problem with that? <laughs> and I just said, okay, well, let, let's just, you know, let's just look at some of the indicators here. And you, know, you could just see the light bulb going on. And, and now, you know, he's an absolute zealot for, you know, is A, I must go in uh, into this situation because that's my job and everything else. But I'm yes. looking at it through the lens of is, is what I'm encountering in front of me a victim? Even if, the, if you know, if there's criminality that's taken place, yes. is that person being forced to do something against their will? Because if it is, they're the victim. They're, they're not the, the the perpetrator of that crime. That's somebody else we need to get. Yeah, so it's so refreshing to hear that perspective because often um, it can be it can be easy to think of somebody just purely in terms of you know if you're committing a crime, there's this very you know zero tolerance uh, attitude towards people, and and often we you know, not the police, uh, you know, this is not a reflection on them at all, uh, but this can happen to either the police or private investigators or any other kind of investigator, somebody in a, a bank or, you know, even in a, in a corporation that sees criminality or sees a certain type of behavior and makes assumptions and doesn't look beyond that because really we've never necessarily been in a position where we have been aware of this issue and we've had to look beyond the very obvious uh, top layer of behavior. Um, and I think from my point of view, what, what, and I'm speaking, you know, purely from somebody that's uneducated really in this whole area, apart from the work I've done, um, you know, one of the questions I often get asked is, is child exploitation, for example, getting worse? Um, is it increasing because of technology and the availability of uh, communication and obtaining certain types of material? Or are we just becoming more aware because of communication and uh, social media and that type of thing? And I wonder if with issues around human trafficking, modern slavery, whether this is just an issue that has always existed and we're just becoming more aware of it. These people are rising to the surface more because of people like yourself uh, raising these issues and, and making real changes rather than this being a brand new problem that is, um, you know, potentially being exacerbated through the use of technology, but has always really existed. A great question. Um, I mean, I, let me answer the easy part of the question first, <laughs> which is, I, yeah, I think you're right. Technology is exacerbated exasperating the problem um you know technology is is agnostic so it can be used for great good but it can also be used for for great evil and i think i think we see that i think we see increasingly both the recruitment and the control moving online um Mm -hmm. and so um you know we're gonna have to adapt again in in terms of, of how we we deal with this 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and then you touched on the point, you know, of, of CSE, child sexual exploitation, you know, which, again, you know, it ha- yes, it had certainly CSE has been going on for a very long time. I, mm-hmm. I think there's a step change, though, and I think it is it's the numbers uh, that we're seeing now. And I think it, aided and abetted by technology as a means of control has allowed mm-hmm. it to sort of flourish. So I think there was a limit in terms of that that ease to build a network through which you could then exploit a whole bunch uh, of people relatively yes. easy. That, that's what technology has, has allowed um, mm-hmm. to, to happen. Um, and then, I mean, certainly, and I can only really talk with, with any sort of level of sort of um, expertise in the UK context around CSE. Yes. But I think what we've seen there is just in increasing uh, awareness that you know especially in the last few years is highlighting some some activity that uh, you know probably has been going on for a long time um, but I think we're just seeing more of it and it's that that dangerous thing of you know once people become aware of it it, it, it provokes shock and outrage but it, it almost kind of like presents to other people uh, at the other end of the spectrum going oh well I can do that as well. Um, and so, I mean, in essence, whether it's CSE, whether it's modern slavery, whether it's human trafficking, what you're mm-hmm. talking about is people that prey on other people's vulnerability. And yes. th- th- there's only sort of three things that keep you and I from being in that situation. You know, you and I both have a job. Um, mm-hmm. We have a community that we're a part of and we have a, a, a house around yes. that. And, and those three things sort of keep us safe and secure. If you lost those three things, um, you know, whether it was because you thought you were moving to another country for a job or for a relationship that was was false, you're suddenly yes. plunged into vulnerability. Or if you don't have those three things in the, in the first place or, you know, or mm-hmm. some of them are removed, then traffickers of, or enslavers are very adept at, at preying on that vulnerability. And it's, it's you know, and with children, it's, it's even more complicated because they're vulnerable. They're growing up and trying to work out, you know, how the world works and everything else. And I think what we've seen, you know, in the UK is it's vulnerable, predominantly girls. I mean, a small number of boys, but predominantly girls, you know, who are coming from vulnerable backgrounds that are targeted and then are exploited. Um, and, and so, you know, the, Unfortunately, that's the world that we live in. And I, I think, you know, I remember back to when we uh, we were doing the CSJ report and I was talking with somebody about the CSE problem. We mm. touched on it in the report. I mean, we had people that were afraid to speak to us, even under conditions of total anonymity. They right. they would tell us, but they said, you can't print any of this. And and what they were what they were alluding to was just the, the nature and the scale of, uh, of the problem that, that they knew from their perspective. And so I think that was shocking. And then the other thing that was shocking was, you know, how does a child become vulnerable? Because I think you and I, you know, both as parents would, would go, well, how, you know, it wouldn't happen to my kid and everything else. And I just remember just being stopped in my tracks when somebody said, well, what they do is they target the one vulnerable kid and then they work on their network. Now, before technology, that network was fairly small. Yes. With technology, that network is huge. And it's the means by which you can grow your network very fast, but it's also the means that that can then be used to control that individual. So they feel entirely trapped and not free to come forward and say, 
And then the final kicker in all of this is up until very recently, you know, whether it's modern slavery or CSE, they just mm. weren't believed. Right. And, and it's that lack of belief that the person that is telling you something which seems too horrific or uh, too scandalous to be, to be true is in fact true. And I think this is the shift that needs to take place, which is first and foremost treat the person that's, that's presenting or that's in front of you as a victim. Um, and understand what, you know all the different psychological impacts uh, and terrors that they're having to go through and deal with, which means that they can't give you a linear story of what's happened to them. That their story may seem to contradict each other. That uh, you know they're going to be all over the place emotionally, and so that's very difficult for policing and for, for private investigators to deal with because they want you know here's point one, point two, point three, point four. I've done my AB interview. Therefore, I can now prosecute, et cetera, et cetera. But you're dealing with people who are incredibly vulnerable and can't, can't give you that information. So I think we've got to become much more smarter in terms of, A, understanding the victim, B, understanding, B, understanding the psychological issues that they're facing, and finding different ways of prosecuting this crime, which in some instances will mean you know, it's a victimless prosecution. And what that means is that there's hard work to be done to find the other corroborating evidence in order that you can get a conviction. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the having that in the having empathy and compassion as an investigator is is something. I mean, I talk about it all the time. I talk about how with technology changing and uh, artificial intelligence becoming more and more prevalent, people using. Uh, automated tools to conduct analysis of, of, you know, large amounts of data and that kind of thing that we are, I, I feel at risk of, of losing these very core, um, the fundamental things that make an investigator what they are, which is compassion, empathy, the ability to reason, uh, the ability to read body language and discern whether or not, you know, the fact that somebody may not be able to prevent, uh, present a case that sounds logical and and give you evidence and 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 yet you can still pursue that is so important and and my fear I I definitely have a fear when it comes to artificial intelligence and the fact that you also alluded to this earlier Andrew that we are dealing with business people where these are not your small time criminals these are organised uh, you know often international organised criminals that have all the time and the resources and the money and the business networks and the communication capabilities in the world. Um, it's in their interest to, to learn about, uh, different jurisdictions. It's in their interest to become experts in, in various, you know, supporting types of crime like fraud, um, money laundering, uh, sexual exploitation, all of the, the different elements that, that fall into, um, human trafficking. And these people have that time and those resources. And, and often we see the same thing in the, in fraud and in the hacking world as well, that these are some of the best and the brightest people out there whose skills are, you know, they're also being exploited in some cases. Um, and their skills being used to, uh, perpetuate this crime. Yeah. And, and I think we're, we see it over and over again, just the ingenuity of what you're up against in terms of trying to sort of get to the people that are prosecuting this. And I, I think you're right. The, the first thing is, is to acknowledge the mindset that what you're dealing with is a smart commodity trader. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yes, they are criminal, but that's their thinking as, as a business. You know, how can I maximize the return on my investment um, and on right. my commodity? 
And and again, we see everything from a, a mom and pop operation, but you know, a mom and pop operation that now has access to the world through the World Wide Web. Um, right. On that, to you know, sophisticated uh, OCGs and and all points in between. And I think you know, as we begin to unpick and unravel the extent of this around the globe, we're going to come across more and more ingenious ways of doing things. And, you know, and we we've seen things like just I mean, just recently coming to, uh, around sort of forced criminality. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you all know this from your time in the UK, police. You know mm-hmm. the. You know, there's 43 different police forces in the UK. Well, once you cross a county line and go from one force area to another force area, it's quite difficult to, to carry out an investigation. But, you know, it requires those forces to work together. Well, well, if you're a criminal or you're or you're a trafficker, you just exploit that. You just move your commodity across from one police force area to another and exploit them mm-hmm. in that. But you stay in the other force, you know, the, the, a different force area. We've seen control, you know, move onto the internet through the use of webcams. Mm-hmm. So you walk into a place and the trafficker's not there. The trafficker's at the other end of a yes. webcam, you know, the, the other side of the country or in a different country. Um, you know, what what does it mean? You know, I was just even listening tonight to the news, you know, Bitcoin has suddenly come roaring back. You know, everybody's writing it off, but it's now coming back and, and everybody's looking at it. You know, what, what does that mean in terms of the vast amount of funds that are, you know, that are raised by this, this industry, you know, which the ILO estimate uh, 150 billion US dollars per annum profit, which is just ginormous. Yeah, that's right. And and you you have to wonder where is that money going? Where how is it and moving around? Rushed. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And the banking industry is certainly becoming more and more aware of of money laundering. Though you know, there I know from the work I do with uh, with various financial institutions globally, just how much more aware uh, the banking industry has become and, and are regulating uh, heavily around, um, you know, know your cons- customer, uh, enhance due diligence, um, you know, politically exposed persons, all, all of these, uh, the ways that, that money has traditionally moved around um, in a fairly unobstructed way. And now, of course, there's, uh, as you've mentioned, there's digital currencies that make it much easier for people to anonymously move money around in a way that is decentralized and unregulated. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that is just, uh, you know, assisting uh, the the criminals and assisting the people that are, are the controllers in these situations uh, no end. Yeah, and I mean, one of the it's funny enough, I was doing a, a training session with with a force um, just last week, and I said, you know, before you start anything else, when you get to, when you're starting the investigation into this, start a financial investigation because mm. it's about the money, um, right? Uh, and if you don't, when you execute that warrant and you haven't done all the due diligence around that, so that you can shut everything down, mm. the assets will be gone before you realize it. Right, because they can be gone at the at literally the click of a button yeah. now. Yeah, um, you know it's it's just not that. At, at one time, it was you know difficult to hide money uh, moving around, even internationally. There's you know through the banking system, there's always a trace. If you're using, you know, if you've got uh, just a bunch of um, digital wallets it, that that are accessible only online, and you've and all of your money is in the cloud, and it's all just being transmitted around uh, digitally. Very, very difficult to trace and very difficult to pin down exactly what the value of that is because it's not all in one place. And, um, you know, you may not necessarily even be the controller of the finances of that. Uh, there's, there's no need to prove, uh, 
um, who you are when it comes to the, you know, sending or receiving funds anymore. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, and we work with the banks as well. And one of the things that we're trying to do is work with the banks around a set of questions that, that we're asking um, survivors in terms of, you know, did you see any of these things? So just like we're looking for indicators as to is this individual a victim of trafficking and slavery, you know, mm-hmm. we're then saying to them, did you see any of these signs or did you observe any of this whilst, you know, you were in that situation? Because they're the indicators that we can then play back and inform the banks and inform policing around, okay, well, we're seeing this kind of activity going on. So I think we're in this war of attrition between, you know, who's got the best data, you know, have the criminals got it or, or have we got it? And so we've got to get better at getting uh, data so that we understand the who, the what, the where, the why, the how. And, and part of that is through talking with victims and saying, you know, did you see these things? You know, this is what we're seeing. This is what we understand from banking. Did you see any of this when, when you were in that situation? So that we begin to understand the typologies better. We begin to understand what the other indicators are. Because unless we get on top of the, the data situation, even down to, you know, how big a problem it is, but more being able to ask those granular questions that are so important. We're never really going to change, you know, the equation on this. I honestly could speak with you about this all day. I have so many questions and I, and I really, I believe that we are, you know, just at the tip of the iceberg here and, and there's so much information that everybody needs to know. Um, if I could ask you one final question before we, sure. before we wrap up our discussion. Um, what's the, what's the, the best piece of advice that you could give to investigators uh, when it comes to uh, this whole area that would be most helpful to you in the work that you do would be most helpful to the victims and to to trying to, um, I mean, I, I know it's, it's difficult to even think about shutting this whole situation and this, this whole type of crime and exploitation down altogether, but to try and minimize or reduce the impact on victims or to try and raise the awareness uh, of organizations like yourselves, um, so that we can, we can work together more in a collaborative space globally to, to try and help here. You hit the nail on the head when you said it, it's about collaboration. And I think for me, what I mean about collaboration, and this actually goes back to when Unseen started, you know, back to Steve, the senior police officer. It, he said to me, he said, what we need to do is, as police, we need to do our absolute best job. And these are the boundaries of what we do. And, and you know, we are we become better aware, better trained, better informed, better victim focused in, in all of that so that we can do our job the best. And then budding up yeah. right next to us is what, you know, what we're going to do is unseen. Uh, and we'll do that to our absolute best ability. Um, yes. The police are not unseen and unseen are not the police. And so for me, the collaboration, you know, and it's beyond just NGO and policing, it's everybody has a has their place in building this wall against slavery. Um, and we mm-hmm. need to know where our boundaries are and we need to know where, you know, we, we are up against, you know, a, a fellow organisation. And then we don't stray from that, but we, we are absolutely committed to giving the best that we can do in that in collaboration with everybody else. And we don't mm-hmm. become territorial as well. I think, you know, there's a lot of sort of right. turf wars over this. And it's kind of like, no, there's a, there's a bigger price to be had that's bigger than, um, than turf. Um, and I think my, my observation is there's too many egos in this space. Um, right. So we, we need to get rid of the egos and say, actually, what we need to be focused on is, is winning the war against slavery. You know, 
as unseen, our, our mission is to put ourselves out of business, that we're not needed anymore. Um, <laughs> that, that keeps us real. And that should, yes. be, that should be the everybody else's vision as well in tackling this issue of slavery. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, less competition, more collaboration, less egos, and, um, you know, everybody working together for the greater good to try and try and reduce this uh, this horrific problem um, that is really a global epidemic. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much yeah. for your time today. It's been uh, it's just been fantastic to talk to you. Uh, if people want to get hold of Unseen, if people want to um, report something, what's the best way to get hold of your organization? So uh, Unseen's on the web, so it's uh, unseenuk.org. Um, right. And then the Modern Slavery Helpline is uh, modernslaveryhelpline.org. Um, or right. in the UK, you can call 08000 121 700 24 7. Um, you know, whether it's with a tip off or it, if you need advice um, or you're with a victim and you, you want to call on their behalf, um, there's trained operators there 24 7. Fantastic. That's great. Well, Andrew Wallace, it's been a, a pleasure speaking to you and um, I have no doubt that we'll be speaking again very soon. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Well, once again, thank you for listening and for your incredible support. If you're not already a part of the World Class Investigator community, find me on Twitter at HuntedJulie and I'll be happy to point you in the right direction. Until next time, take care.